0: The worst thing you can have is a situation where you're expecting to deliver credits at a certain period of time and you're not able to deliver those credits because of the need of needing to uh, continue to extend the forward period because of the lack of uh, being able to convert on time.
1: Welcome to Buzz House, a weekly podcast where you can find all the buzz around multifamily housing. I'm Don Bernard, the partner in charge of Baker Tilly's multifamily housing practice. And I'm Garrett Gibson, a partner at Baker Tilly,
2: also specializing in consulting on multifamily housing transactions across the
1: country. Each week, we'll bring you a guest or a topic in the multifamily housing industry that will help you win now and anticipate tomorrow. Let's get started. Our guests today on the Buzz House are Dan Smith, a Senior Vice President with US Bank and John Gilmore of Walker & Dunlop, a Managing Director. We're going to have a discussion on how things are looking in the debt markets. Before jumping into our discussion with Dan and John, just a couple of items around industry news. In early September, the White House announced a number of housing initiatives with a goal to increase the supply of affordable housing. One of the items is allowing Fannie and Freddie to increase their annual amount of tax credit equity investment into the loan housing tax credit market up to $850 million each, which is up from $500 million, so $700 million extra on the equity side into the market. With their duty-to-serve mission, the Fannie and Freddie money has helped to reach into rural markets and other difficult projects. With the fixed 4% rate enacted at the end of 2020, we have seen the overall tax credit equity market increase by a couple of billion dollars. A second item which relates to debt, our topic today with our guests, is the reinstatement of the Federal Financing Bank, or FFB, initiative, to support FHA and Housing Finance Agency multifamily risk sharing program loans. There'll be no dollar limit on the amount of financing FFB is authorized to provide. HFAs will have three years center into commitments for FFB financing. We'll definitely keep you in the loop on this as it kind of continues to roll out. Just a couple of announcements. The first announcement is that the capital Magnet fund NOFA came out. Garrick and I have talked several times about the capital magnet funds. This NOFA came out in early September And the CDFI fund will award $383 million in this round. So we know a number of people are working on their applications as we speak, due in a couple of months. Also of note is the first week of September, the CDFI fund announced the allocation of $5 billion of new market tax credits. So if you have a a commercial or mixed use project, make sure to be in, in touch with a number of allocatees that have the $5 billion of new markets. And finally, with the budget resolution discussions ongoing in Washington, D.C., we'll have... Uh, definitely, Buzzhouse podcast uh, this fall to give updates and any other kind of related legislation around around housing. Now we have a lot of topics we want to cover with our guests. So, Garrick and I will jump into our discussion with Dan and John. Garrick, thanks, Don, and thanks for that intro. We like our listeners to know a little bit about our guests. So, why don't we go ahead and start
2: off with you, Dan? Why don't Why don't you let our listeners know a little bit about your role with the U.S. Bank?
3: Hey, thanks, Garrick. Thanks, Don. It's good to be with both of you today and with John. So my name is Dan Smith, and I head up uh, business development, so so basically loan acquisitions for U.S. Bank's Affordable Housing Debt Group. We're part of the U.S. Bank CDC, which does uh, equity and debt. Uh, across really all credit programs but the team that I'm on works in the with the low income housing tax credit so the vast majority of what we do each year which is about a billion dollars is construction loans on life deals we work on deals where we do the equity we work on deals where syndicators do equity Uh, We work in all areas of the country, primarily in U.S. Bank's uh, banking footprint, but we also do some stuff outside of our footprint. And we work with many different permanent lenders. And I've been with the bank about uh, nine years, since 2012. And uh, it's good to be with you.
2: Thank you, Dan. So thank you for that introduction. And John, why don't you go ahead and let us know about what your role is at Walker Dunlop?
0: Thanks, Garrett. And Don, I, I definitely appreciate the opportunity to join podcast and um, also alongside a, a great industry colleague at U.S. Bank, which has been a partner to us on some transactions that we've worked out with their construction loan debt group. Primarily, I would say to the shortest answer to that question, Gary, would be is uh, you know my role is to really control everything outside of my control. Jokes aside, I have the uh, esteemed pleasure of originating capital market executions across the country focused on affordable housing, uh, focused on the affordable housing industry. And that's primarily loan originations through Fannie, Freddie, and HUD. It it is definitely a major topic of interest uh, with Walker & Dunlop. Over the past three years, Walker & Dunlop on the debt side has originated over $17 billion debt financing transactions tied to affordable housing uh, through our main capital providers uh, being Fannie, Freddie, and HUD. We do this nationally and we're looking to um, really, really uh, grow and extend our platform across the country um, and expand our business to um, affordable housing developers. And really, really happy to be on the podcast today with everybody.
2: Well, thank you. Thank you for that introduction. And and, uh, and Dan, let's go ahead and jump in. I'll start with you, Dan. So on the construction loan side, over the last 18 months, you know, we've had a pandemic going on and possible supply chain issues. You had, you, had, you know, risk of slow release up, et cetera. Have you seen any underwriting changes or uh, any different stress
3: testing? We certainly have. You know, I think early in the pandemic, which seems like a long time ago, you know, we were, we were worried about a lot of stuff. I think there was a lot of uncertainty. You know, no one knew exactly what was going to happen, how this was going to impact uh, our industry, how it was going to impact the, the broader economy. I think in 2021, so really since the start of the new year, most of our concerns on the construction lending side are over uh, development costs and time. I think early on, I'll I'll talk a little bit about costs first. I think everybody probably, uh, if you're listening to this podcast, you you probably are involved in the tech industry. So, you know, everybody who was doing a deal earlier this year, I think, say, before June 30th, probably learned what the lumber index was. You know, that was the vehicle for all of our anxieties about construction costs, was that lumber index, now I had never paid attention to the lumber index before, but I but I sure as heck did between about March first and uh, July fifteenth of this year. So I know it, it hit an all time high of uh, sixteen hundred and seventy. I, I couldn't even tell you, Garrick, what that measures. I don't think it's sixteen hundred dollars per foot or anything like that. You know, and, and that was this was an index that's usually in a range uh, from five hundred to seven hundred. Now, so the last several months, it's been back down in that normal range. So, you know, that indicates that, that on the material side, uh, things have settled down a little bit. I think what hasn't settled down is the labor side. I think when we talk to our clients and when we look at our projects that we have going, there have been some delays. Early in the pandemic, I think we we're worried about job sites being shut down, and we saw a little bit of that. But really, I think what we have now is just a lack of labor which is impacting budgets, it's impacting timeframes. Nothing too serious at this point. We're not looking at at a catastrophe by any means, but it's, it's probably something more that's, uh, you know, something to keep an eye on. One other thing I would note, this is probably something that that the developers and general contractors who are listening can relate to, but, but we've seen a lot of approvals and paperwork from building inspectors and zoning inspectors get delayed uh, and it just it seems like there's there's probably a little more i mean there's a paperwork intensive industry that we work in but i think with some of the government agencies still working from home I've, i think we've seen some some delays and even a few curveballs come up on construction deals on the leasing side we've had some senior projects have been a little bit slow to lease Nothing that we're really alarmed about. I think it's just, you know, in some markets, seniors just aren't out looking for housing right now. Um, so I think seniors are probably taking, you know, the COVID uh, precautions a little more seriously, maybe than the than the general population. Um, and I think, you know, they're probably a little more reluctant to move than they have been in the past. So we're seeing some slower lease-ups on our senior projects. In the family space, I, I honestly don't we've seen any impact on absorption so those deals are doing just fine so it's a rapidly changing environment six months from now we'll probably be worried about uh, different stuff but that's what we're worried about today Garrett.
2: For that insight, Dan, yeah, I didn't really think about the slow lease up on the, the senior side. So given that, John, so I know you're not necessarily involved in the construction loan side, but, you know, given what Dan just mentioned, what are you seeing or are you seeing any p- impacts on forward timelines uh, due to the pandemic and any corresponding extension periods?
0: Uh, yeah, that's a that's a great question, uh, Garrett. And I think, um, you know, Dan you know, hit the nail on the head when he described you know some of the the really the concerns and the mitigating factors that the industry is is looking at as it comes to construction i would say although we don't do construction loans you know, like dan mentioned we also have taken a very very close look at cost and plan and cost reviews and timelines and like dan i didn't pay attention to lumber pricing until earlier this year, and by no means am I an expert on it, but it was at an all-time high, and I know it's come down, which is great. But still, I think it's it's definitely impacted our industry from a cost standpoint that you can actually see. Now let's talk about the costs that you don't see that are kind of embedded in transactions that involve construction and forward commitments. Because of the impact of the pandemic uh, and the fact that most of these transactions Uh, We're talking about LIHTC deals, and primarily I'm speaking on the 4% side, and we'll talk about the 9% side a little bit later. But typically, these transactions are done with forward rate locks that uh, predict what the construction period would be and then a lease up period. I would say in 2020 and in 2021 thus far, we have seen a large portion of those forward periods need extensions. Now, luckily, we are in the mission-based business, and there is a mechanism for always extending uh, these forward periods, but I would give a drastic example of one one particular transaction in which we are on our fourth or fifth extension period. Uh, That's a little bit of a unique transaction. Uh, I won't go into the details of that, but typically, the documents only give you One or two six month extension options to get from the construction period to the permanent conversion period. So, the impact that has had is now when you come in and want to request what would be normally a programmatic 24 month forward period, we're actually really taking a harder look at those deals and kind of, you know, really making borrowers look at, you know, a 30 to 36 month forward period to ensure that we give them enough time, because the worst thing you can have is a situation where you're expecting to deliver credits at a certain period of time, and you're not able to deliver those credits because of the need of needing to uh, continue to extend the forward period because of the lack of uh, being able to convert on time. And the primary reason of converting on time really had to do with a lot of the items that Dan talked about earlier, which has led to slower construction periods, slower absorption periods, and thus um, needing more time to convert. And that all comes at a cost because the way we enter into a forward rate lock, right, we judge the time period by which a, a property will convert. And then we also look at the duration and the useful life of the overall permanent loan, period. And as, as that continues to get extended out, you know, the, the investors that buy that paper and, and the market, they're going to want additional yield for the expected life of that security staying out longer than maybe what they expected the security to stay out pre-pandemic. And all of this is also coupled with a, a steeper yield curve. Uh, so although rates are low, the yield curve has steepened which in turn has also added to the yield requirement for investors so ultimately it's definitely not only affecting the construction side it's also affecting the permanent loan side as well because we want to ensure you know that we have enough time to deliver what we say we're going to what we say we're going to deliver to the market right which is we're going to deliver this this piece of paper to a permanent loan investor at conversion and then also from a tax credit uh, investor side they want to obviously deliver the credits when they expect them to deliver the credits as well
2: thank you for that it's, it's such an illustration of that domino effect right so I, we do I do have a really quick question for Don wanted to ask a couple of questions as well so this is a question for both of you so during the pandemic what have you seen and you know in terms of operations and, and have there been many requests for forbearances? You know, we're always uh, interested in in trying to find out if there are a lot
3: of requests for these. Why don't you go ahead and start off with that, Dan? So I know this was something we spent um, probably in March and April of uh, 2020. We spent a lot of time gearing up for a wave of requests um, both on our, our perm loan portfolio, we have we have uh, we have some perm loans on our books, and then also as as equity investor, uh, we were expecting people to hit their operating reserves. We were expecting loan forbearances. You know, you may remember the world kind of felt like it was coming to an end back then, and we really haven't seen that. I think I can count on one finger, uh, maybe two fingers, I, I you know the number of deals. That have actually needed to take those measures. I think you know the, the story is one of um, I think the government stimulus, the pandemic, uh, COVID relief bills, the extended unemployment benefits, um, really have helped tenants uh, pay their rent over the last eighteen months. So so we really haven't seen much of that. I think you know we've seen some properties with higher expenses. As you as you might expect, you think all of the mitigation factors that um, that property managers had to take last year, you know that we've we've seen some of that. But on the on the income side, things have been pretty stable. I think you know collections are are off in most parts of our portfolio by just a few percent. It's certainly enough to be covered by our by our debt coverage underwriting. So, um, so that's good news. There's a, there's a few areas of concern. Government subsidies are are coming in slower. I think, you know, the the one thing to watch, um, I mean, there's, I think there's several things to watch over the next 12 months. I know I'm kind of expounding beyond your question here, Derek, but um, you know, the the rent relief that was in the COVID bill. um, I think that money has been very slow in getting out. That is true on, if you talk to light tech owners, I think they would all agree with that. And then, you know, what's going to happen as the economy tries to, to wean itself off of stimulus? Um, are there going to be enough jobs um, for people to keep paying the rent? But the last 18 months have actually been pretty good. Much better than I feared uh, 18 months ago, that's for sure. John, did you have any comments
2: on that? Or
0: yeah, I would say, I mean, I I really would agree a lot with what uh, Dan just said. I mean, we at Walker Dunlop we service over seventy six hundred loans and almost two million units uh, nationwide, with a large portion of that being in in California, which was you know kind of made obviously headlines the way they handled some of their policies as it pertained to, uh, to renters, but we didn't see a whole lot of forbearance requests. I would agree that ultimately, um, you know, tenants uh, did find a way to pay their rent. And I think that uh, in a lot of cases, maybe the rent didn't come in on time. So we kind of saw a lot of fluctuating collections, but ultimately we saw the rent getting collected. I think from a operation standpoint I would agree that expenses the opex side has taken more of a hit as you know a lot of you know tenants were working from home which you know is obviously going to have more wear and tear on the apartment on, on the apartments themselves uh, so you expect to see you know higher maintenance costs higher utility costs from you know just the usage and items of that nature one thing we have paid closer attention to when we look at a new transaction is not only the collections, but also we pay, a very, close, uh, we pay very close attention to delinquency reports. And I think that um, we really take a blank approach to how we analyze you know, whether or not rent is collectible. Um, and that's something that we typically had not done pre-pandemic. Uh, So we really pay close attention to 30, 60 and 90 day past due. But we also take into account various stimulus programs that are out there in which um, tenants may qualify for, because obviously the goal is to not have any type of tenant displacement, uh, but also ensure that the rent is collected and, uh, you know, that the owners of these properties can continue to provide and maintain, you know, quality, affordable housing.
1: Good, John. John and Dan, thanks. Thanks for those uh, really good insight. Kind of another question for both of you, and I can maybe start with John this time, and and Dan second. You know, our, our listeners are always interested in, you know, about what rates have done, and you know, where are our rates today versus 18 months ago, or or things maybe you know, did some of the risk kind of factor into? I think you talked about some of the timing. You know, John, and, and so forth. or maybe if you could just both touch, you know, briefly on what's happened to rates and, and where we are. Maybe ball, really big ballpark today, John.
0: Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'll talk about rates in the permanent loan market. I mean, I think um, you know maybe Dan can talk more about how rates in the construction lending market or the bridge lending market has been impacted, but. Overall, rates are very, very attractive. <laughs> I mean, they. Um, we definitely, when we first got into the pandemic, we, there was a little bit of a scare as far as um, liquidity in the market. I think the major index that we all judge everything by, the, which is the 10-year, it dropped to maybe somewhere around 40 basis points at some point in time. Um, I could have my numbers off, but they, it was drastically, drastically low. And you also saw investor spreads widen out at that given point in time. And I think, you know, as a country, I think there was a very, you know, good response because kind of we, I mean, we kind of had the blueprint from the 2008-2009 crisis on how to react to a potential lack of liquidity in the market. And I think the Fed did a great job to ensure confidence in the capital market system, which, you know, then kind of started to normalize uh, the index a little bit and also push investor spreads down to all-time lows. I would still say, um, even though we're kind of in a somewhat of a rising interest rate environment, that um, if you want to call it that, I mean, it's clear the index is higher today than it was 12 months ago. But as we speak today, it's, uh, the 10-year index is hovering around uh, 150 basis points, which is still you know, super attractive relative to... Um, you know, where cap rates are. So I still think it's uh, it's a great time to, to be in the market to finance uh, your properties. And I think rates can be utilized in a manner to really uh, help to you know, drive returns because the fact that rates have come down as much as they have on the permanent loan side, it really has helped out um, the ability for sponsors, you know, to increase the amount of financing that they can get on a particular property because of their ability to lock in a very, very attractive interest rate. Happy to talk through where specific rates are for the various loan products, but you know, I, I think in general, you know, they're very attractive on the on the permanent loan side and all in still lower than where they were, you know, 18 months ago.
1: Great, thanks for that, John. Danny, yeah, how about how about a little bit on the on the construction side?
0: Sure.
3: So, on the construction side, uh, we're talking about short-term rates. Um, I think most uh, of the large banks, certainly U.S. bank, lend against LIBOR. I'll say a little bit more about that in a minute as long as I've got the microphone uh, about the switch away from LIBOR. But I'm talking a little bit about how, where rates are. You know, LIBOR, for my entire, uh, really, most of my banking career, which is now fifteen years, has been uh, has been very low, below fifty basis points, really since the last financial crisis in two thousand nine. It had just started to sort of peak its head up above that fifty basis point level, which which previously would have been considered normal when the pandemic hit. So, uh, LIBOR today, one month LIBOR is down to eight basis points. So that will give you an idea. It's been, it's basically been there since probably the second week, third week of the pandemic, maybe. There was some interruption very early when people didn't know exactly what was going on in the short term interest rate markets. Uh, that settled down very quickly in the spring of 2020. And since, and since then, we've just been in kind of a low rate environment. Spreads, I think, have started to tick up a little bit. I think developers, are probably familiar or not by now with uh, interest rate floors uh which is something that you know were pretty widespread back during the financial crisis and had kind of gone away until the pandemic and they're back they're, they're they're not very high floors or at least from the banker's perspective down they're not very high um you know somewhere in the 50 basis points i think earlier in the pandemic they were up around a full point um, so your, you know, your borrowing costs on uh, construction loan and taxable deal are probably going to be around three percent, and uh, somewhere between two and a half and two seventy-five on a tax exempt deal. So historically, very good. And as long as I've got the microphone here, got a really exciting topic in uh, in LIBOR. You may remember there was kind of a scandal several years ago where the bankers, uh, I was not one of them, but the bankers that reported the transactions that were used to set the London interbank offered rate, which is what LIBOR stands for, you know, we're up to some shenanigans. And since then, regulators have been have been sort of uh, saying, hey, we're going to make you go stop using LIBOR. Well, that day is actually here. So I know U.S. Bank is is trying not to use LIBOR on any deals that close, you know, at, even starting here in the next 30 days or so. And we are switching to the secured overnight funding rate, which is SOFR. Uh, it's very similar to LIBOR. Today's LIBOR rate is eight basis points. Today's uh, one month term SOFR rate is six basis points. So I'm probably not qualified to say anything more than that. But just uh, if, you're, if your banker is telling you they can't use LIBR anymore and uh, they're switching to SOFR or to, to there's a few other rates out there, um, you know they're not trying to pull one over on you. This is something that's it's a real thing. So just want to make sure your listeners are aware of that, Don.
1: Good. Thank you both. And, and Dan, thank you for that. That is good data. I know I would heard a little bit about that. I think I've heard some other people talking about the index. So that's really good for us and all of our listeners to, to kind of know about the SOFR. Uh, I'm sure we'll you know, hear more about that. Just kind of have uh, one last question for John. Um, John, I know, you know, we talked about where, where we've been, where we are, and maybe maybe switching just a little bit to, to workforce housing. And I know the, I know, you know, the Fannies and Freddies are, are pretty active. Can you just maybe us a flavor for what's going on, you know, with the, with the GSEs in the workforce housing space?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Don, for that question. That that is a major topic right now that I think uh, your listeners should definitely be aware of, especially the listeners that are in the the acquisition rehab space. Essentially, what uh, Fannie and Freddie are are doing is they are really taking a closer look at naturally occurring affordable housing as part of their uh, lending requirements. They in twenty twenty and into twenty twenty one. Uh, they were they're required to do approximately fifty percent of all of their business in what's considered mission. Typically, you know, the the previous scorecards for the GSEs that came out did not really dictate the amount of mission business that they had to do. They looked at it as kind of business that they had to do just naturally versus a requirement. Uh, to do, uh, you know, 50 cents of every dollar, you know, focused on affordable workforce housing. And the reason I want to mention the workforce housing piece is because they define the workforce housing as up to 80% of AMI. And although workforce housing in some high cost markets across the country can, you know, can go up to 100, 120% of AMI, I think for most of the country, you know, rents that are naturally at 80% of AMI would be considered, Uh, workforce. right? They don't quite qualify for uh, some of the subsidy programs like units that are restricted at 60% AMI or below. Uh, But at the end of the day, those tenants are still out there and they're still paying a a very large portion of their income uh, towards housing, which is not sustainable, especially in a consumer-based economy uh, like we have across our country. So what we've been doing is really focusing on providing you know, pricing breaks on transactions that that maybe don't have a restriction in place where either the sponsor's either willing to enter into a self-imposed restriction or the rents are just naturally below um, 80% AMI. So that's something where even if you're acquiring a property, now let's say there's no rent restriction that's in place, um, I would still... You know, your listeners should still work with their their favorite lender out there to request and see if it qualifies as a workforce housing execution, because that is something where uh, they can get favorable pricing breaks. And we're talking anywhere from, you know, 20 to maybe even 40 basis points as a pricing reduction if um, if a particular property qualifies as workforce housing. Another very interesting program that's out there is Freddie Mac has a forward execution they call it the uh, non litech forward program and this is for essentially any type of a uh, new development that is occurring in which there is a restriction that's in place but it's the restrictions are you know above sixty percent AMI. Uh, so if you're doing a, you know, a project where you, know, you want to restrict you know, 50% of the project at 80% AMI and it's a new construction project, you have the ability to call up uh, my friend Dan from U.S. Bank and, and get a construction loan from U.S. Bank, assuming it, 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 it qualifies for their credit standards. And then you have the opportunity to work with a Freddie Mac uh, to place a forward rate lock on that construction loan, which was not a, a program that was previously available. And I think it really does help out uh, with uh, predictability on you know, the exit strategy by locking in a, a forward interest rate on a transaction that you know, does not have tax credits. So that's a couple of different highlights I think uh, the listener should be aware of in regards to some of the workforce housing programs out there.
1: Very good. That was, again, just a, a really good information for, for people um, to, to to hear about. Uh, Dan and John, really want to thank you both for joining the Buzz House today and a lot of uh, information that, some new information for our, our listeners and, and good to see where we are in the, the debt markets. And, and listeners, thank you for tuning in today. Thank you for listening to Buzz House. To receive a notification when new episodes are available, please subscribe to Buzzhouse, a bank podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. For additional resources around multifamily housing, check out bakertilly.com. And if you have a suggested topic, please send them to build at bakertilly.com. That's B-U-I-L-D at bakertilly.com.